Welcome to IFA Talk, IFA Magazine's weekly podcast. IFA Talk is for professional investors only. Thank you. Thanks very much for joining us for the latest episode of IFA Talk, IFA Magazine's weekly podcast, where we talk to people who matter about the things that matter in the world of financial services. I'm Brandon Russell, online writer here at IFA Magazine, and joining me on the podcast this week is our editor, Sue Whitbread. Hi, everyone, and a big welcome to IFA Talk again this week. And hopefully, as you always know, we have great guests on the podcast, but this week, Brandon and I have got someone that we're really excited about talking to, and it's on a subject which we think is hugely important. And it's also really popular with you too, our readers and our listeners. And that's about health and mental health in the workplace. And our guest is an award-winning mental health, health and well-being specialist consultant, and she is Amy McEwen. Amy, it's really good to have you on the podcast. Can I ask you to just say a little bit about yourself and tell us a bit about what you do? Thank you, everyone. Lovely to be here. Um, Yes, my name is Amy McEwen. I've been working in and around uh, organisational and workplace health and mental health for 20 years now, um, right at the start of, I guess, what is now an industry. Um, My career has taken a number of different paths from running a mental health tech startup in my 20s and putting online mental health into public sector organisations. Uh, Ernst and Young, I set up and ran their mental health network, but then wrote uh, a UK-wide organisational strategy, which I put in, got seconded down to HR and put in across um, fourteen and a half thousand people. And in recent years, I've been an independent consultant, and clients have included writing global wellbeing strategies for FTSE 100s and writing the EU Parliament's uh, mental health strategy. Well, hi, Amy. Thanks so much for joining us today. As Sue said, we think that mental health and health in general are so important in the workplace. Uh, Can we start the conversation by getting your insight into why you think that's the case, that health and mental health really are so important? Well, I've always thought they're really important, but that's because I grew up the daughter of a psychiatrist who did quite a lot of work in and around occupational medicine. Um, But I think all of us have realised in the last few years since the pandemic just how important it is for the simple reason that if you don't have healthy and mentally healthy people at work, then uh, you're not really working. You don't have productive uh, workplaces or profitable organisations. Your people are most organisations biggest asset, even if not thought as such. And we're also in a really interesting position right now, which is that the Office of National Statistics is showing that, especially in the UK, we have never had so many people out of the workforce with mental health related illness or chronic illness. We're at a point that since records began, we have more people out uh, sat at home unwell, which is a big burden on organisations, but also the productivity of our economy. So, Amy, could we look now at getting some of your practical insight? The experience you've got is second to none, that's clear. But could you share some ideas as to how smaller businesses, perhaps like the financial financial advice firms, which our listeners are, are going to be involved with, how can they actually go about writing or implementing their own health and mental health strategy? So my advice, and I've worked with lots of small organizations. Some of my clients have 10, 15 people. I actually think it's sometimes easier to do some more something more impactful in a small organization than trying to turn around a big juggernaut. Um, but I think the key thing to do is to start with what you're trying to achieve. So with every client, whether large or small, we always start with trying to understand what health, mental health and well-being is to them in their organization and what they're trying to achieve and build up from. And I say this because in society, we're now talking about mental health a lot, 
But when I go into organizations, they've often got quite woolly written well-being strategies that are actually focusing on mental illness. Or they're putting in initiatives that are around sort of mindfulness and yoga lessons, whilst actually they've got a big mental ill health absence problem. So the first thing is to look at what you are and what you're trying to achieve and to be really clear on that. And to be really clear on the definition of whether you're talking about well-being, whether you're talking about mental health or whether you're talking about mental illness, because a lot of the time when we use the term mental health, we're actually talking about mental illness. And a lot of the time when we're talking about well-being, we're using it as a slightly woolly, fluffy word that covers everything. So it's being really clear what you're doing uh, and then what the definitions are, because that will then um, con concentrate your mind and spend onto those things that matter. I also suggest to organizations that they chunk up their approach into three different ways. So one is, what are we doing to prevent illness and to, to keep people healthy and to help Amy and Sue become as healthy as they can be and the best versions of themselves? You know, what interventions and support and policies do we have in place for when people are starting to have ill health? And what absence policies do we have? And what are we doing to support people who are off the work, off work, ill, and um, bring them back into the workplace with a reasonable adjustment. I think chunking up into those three buckets and thinking about what the organization is offering, what policies are in place, what roles and responsibilities people in an organization have is a really helpful way of breaking this down. I also encourage organizations, especially at the moment, we, you know, we've been talking well-being for quite a while now, but actually, as I just said, we've got more people out of the workforce with ill health than ever before and ill mental health. And you know, every day I'm switching on the BBC News to more headlines about NHS waiting lists. So I would also question, and I do this with all sizes of organizations, what sort of health provision you as an employer have to employees? You know, rather than spending money on gym memberships or the slightly lighter well-being initiatives, a really good occupational health service or a really good access to a counsellor or support with primary care or a health cash plan, which is tax efficient if you don't want to go the route of health insurance, could be the best use of money in that it's supporting people when they need it to either stay at work or to be um, supported back to the workplace quicker. That's a really interesting point. And for advisors who are looking after also their clients' long-term well-being, financial well-being, making sure that that consideration is taken into account also with the potential need for healthcare privately funded or medical insurance or whatever taken out. It's a really, really good We're point. definitely moving into a place in the UK where uh, the next political question for the next few decades is going to be who pays for healthcare. Mm -hmm. Is it the individual? Is it the state? Or is it the employer? And certainly if I was government, which thank goodness I'm not, I would be looking at tax breaks towards employers because we've got a fundamental issue in the UK, which is that we don't pay enough for healthcare and we've all grown up with the expectation that it's free. So I encourage organizations and businesses to look at healthcare provision, not from the lens of well-being and sort of fluff, but kind of you can't run an effective business if people are not well and mentally well. And therefore, actually looking at investment in healthcare as a business asset for profitability and productivity. It also has all of the kind of positives around loyalty and retention and things like that. But as a fundamental, you cannot run a business now with ill people, which is the one lesson that, that COVID taught us with so many people off sick at the same time. So that is where I would be looking uh, and I'd be looking long term because we will have people working longer. 
we have a totally different demographic in the workforce now in that we have people working with a lot more chronic illness and mental illness because they're working later in life. We have a lot more senior women uh, working longer in the workforce and women are more likely to have chronic illness and mental illness. So for looking at both how um, your advisors work, but also how they advise families, then there's there's a change in in thought about how we're working, with what health we're working and how we pay for healthcare. You are listening to IFA Talk, IFA Magazine's weekly podcast. Subscribe to us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts to be notified as soon as a new episode becomes available. And follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram at IFA Magazine. Going back to mental health strategies then, I imagine it would be a daunting task to get started with for small businesses. Sticking with the practical tips you kind of discussed a few of them, can we ask you to identify where and how you suggest businesses should get the process started? This is an interesting question because what a lot of organisations do and I think incorrectly, is rush into the sort of awareness, raising, stigma, kind of let's just all talk about it. And I think that can leave organisations legally vulnerable. So I will start with, if someone tells you they've got a mental health condition and that condition has gone on for over a year, then that is technically a disability under the Equality Act, any illness that goes on for a year. So I advise organisations to think through in a slow, structured way doing this properly, which is very different to most organisations, which rush into the let's just talk about mental health and isn't it all great. I I advise organisations to think about the three boxes I've talked about. You know, prevention and awareness is definitely part of that. But before we rush off and start getting people to talk about it, it's being really clear. What are we talking about? Are we talking about well-being? Are we talking about mental well-being? Are we talking about mental ill health? Or are we talking about mental illness? Uh, and and why? And what HR policies and absence policies and things do we have around that? Because when you do start talking about it, people start coming forward or people expect there to be a policy in place. So it's thinking through, there's definitely, and the World Health Organization has some very clear mental health at work um, ideas, which again, fit into those three lumps. So prevention, what we do for people who are ill and how we do the support bit. I would be clear on the support bit and who does it and who manages absence and the role of HR and a line manager before we start doing the first. There's always a piece of mental health awareness and training in there. And there's loads of people doing that sort of work now. But my advice is always before we start doing that, let's think about do we have an absence policy? Are people aware that mental health is covered by that? Are people aware that it can be a disability? Are people aware that reasonable adjustments for mental health are also valid? And a reasonable adjustment for mental health is flexible working hours, um, ability to work from home. Uh, Are we aware that if somebody has told us that they have a mental health condition, it's documented somewhere? Those are the sorts of things I think about. The other bit of UK law that's worth mentioning is that the health and safety executive has since the 90s had stress management risk assessment standards, which are legal. So any organisation over five people should have done a stress risk assessment, um, which looks at the causes. So when we're preventing illness and mental illness, we're doing two things. We are doing something like a psychosocial risk assessment, or there's a new global standard, which is the ISO 45003. It's just a global standard of making sure that work isn't making people ill. And then you've got the how you prevent by teaching people how to look after themselves, which is where most well-being 
program sit. But, you know, doing both of those is quite useful. And legally, you're supposed to do the stress risk assessment. So it's looking at that's looking at how work is set up. And then you've got the how we teach people to meditate, to take better care of themselves, to eat better, to be aware. That's where mental health awareness fits in. So thinking through all of those bits and starting slow, you know, but but being clear when people come forward that we know how to support them and manage them and that that's structured before we then start sort of lurching into sort of prevention, I'd say. Thanks. I know some other people that we've spoken to on podcasts have talked about the mental health first aider, I think it's called. Is that something that, that you would hold any credibility to or not? Well, this is an interesting question, Sue. I actually came onto this podcast. I'm in the process of writing a second open letter to Dean Russell, who is doing a private member's bill on Mental Health First Aid. Mm-hmm. I was a non-executive director of Mental Health First Aid England in 2014 mm-hmm. to 2017. And at Ernst & Young, we rolled out Mental Health First Aid quite extensively. We put it into about 500 people. But, and this is the but, we had extensively bespoke the product doing exactly what I have just told you, which is putting in really clear support care pathways and HR policies before we rolled it out. And we trained people in mental health literacy. So it was called mental health first aid, but at Ernst & Young, we had very clear signposting to our own pathways and support, which we'd put in, but we did not have any mental health first aiders. So where I think mental health first aid has gone off on a tangent and certainly why I and two other ex-neds of mental health first aid are writing to Dean Russell's about his bill is that everybody, including the World Health Organization, recommends some form of mental health literacy and awareness. Just because general knowledge of mental health in society is kind of based on one flew over the cuckoo's nest and is way down below our knowledge of physical illness. Where I think mental health first aid has gone off in a tangent is the creation of the mental health first aider role that some organizations do. The idea being that you stick someone on a training course to understand mental health, but then they become a sort of peer support mechanism outside of informal boundaries that people from the organizations can come in. I have always been against that. At Ernst & Young, we did not have any of those. And my letter to Dean Russell, which has since got picked up by the Chartered Institute of Personnel Development, the Society of Occupational Medicine, uh, uh, the Employee Assistance Programme Association, the British Association of Counselors and Psychotherapists have all backed my letter, which is that mental health first aiders in an organisation should not be a legal requirement because it's a minefield. You know, I work with organisations where the mental health first aid has gone off sick or in one case had taken their own lives or had left the organization because it's the role of the mental health first aider and their position that is usually ill thought through. Not always, and some organizations have made a really good job of it. So in answer to your question, yes to some form of mental health literacy training, um, but no to calling mental health first aiders and this sort of informal peer support mechanism which I, I can imagine is is a similar role to some of your advisors actually you're taking a very mm. informal role pulling all this support in with no real boundaries or psychological um kind of training around what that role is and that's where organizations I think start to go wrong it got popular because it was cheap easy intervention and people like the name but but I spent a lot of time unpicking poorly thought out mental health first aid training programs 
That's very, very valid assessment there. Thank you very much, Amy. And goodness me, that that's just flown by today, hasn't it, Brandon? Gosh, and we've now come to the end of today's podcast. <laughs> so all I can do, Amy, is to say a big thank you to you for coming on Pleasure. the podcast today. I, for one, found it really, really interesting, and I'm sure that our listeners will have done so as well. And some of the insight that you've given and the practical tips that you've given, I think, are really valuable. And we can signpost them in the show notes to your website because I know you've got lots of great material there as well. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. IFA Talk is for investment professionals only. All material has been carefully checked for accuracy, but no responsibility can be accepted for inaccuracies. Whatever appropriate, independent research and whatever necessary legal advice should be sought before acting on any information contained in this podcast. And value of investments and income from them can go down as well as up. You may not get back the amount you originally invested.